Blog Talk Radio. My name is Jean, and I'm joined tonight by co-host and Bubble Hour creator, Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Hello, Jean. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm well, thanks. I'm so happy that I get to co-host with you tonight, because I miss you. I miss you guys all. I know. I know. We need another kitchen table recording session. We definitely do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Catherine is listening and live tweeting tonight, and Catherine happens to have a particular talent for tweeting more prolifically than any human ever should. So if you're following (laughs) us on Twitter tonight, (laughs) the furious fingers of Catherine are at work, so we say hi to her. And we also send our love out to our fourth Bubble Hour sister, Amanda, who's off tonight. And before we get started, I have a really cool story about Amanda this week. This is amazing. So last week... We did a show with Emily Sadler of emilyism.com, and we were talking about a People article that Emily was in in 2009, so six years ago. So Amanda's boyfriend bought a car this week, and what stuck in the seat of the car but a magazine from 2009, a People magazine, and guess who's in it? Guess which copy it is? the one with Emily's story, just a few days after we told the story. So crazy. Isn't that crazy? Ellie, what do you think of that? Yeah, that just gives me goosebumps. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what are the odds? (laughs) It's great. I I really think sometimes that the universe just sort of weaves our lives together, and someone who you may not see for years and years, then all of a sudden your threads overlap about 16 different ways in about a week, And then you kind of go your separate ways again for a while. That's how it felt. It was like very much a confirmation that 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 discussion was was meant to be. Yeah. So we've all had goosebumps all week. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure that this week is going to be just as awesome because I've just had a very powerful week following a seven-day course with the Life Coach, who is our guest tonight. Andrea Owen, a life coach and author who also happens to be a woman in recovery. Andrea's website and book is called Your Kick-Ass Life. Andrea's been a guest on our show previously, which was the January 20th, 2013 episode, if you want to go back and listen to it after this one. And it is long overdue for us to have her back. Andrea is an author, a coach, mentor, a certified life coach who helps women get what they want by letting go of perfectionism, control, and isolation and choosing to practice courage instead. She's helped hundreds of women manage their inner critic to create loving connections and live their most kick-ass life. She's the proud author of 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, BS-Free Wisdom to Ignite Your Inner Badass and Live the Life You Deserve. 
And when she's not juggling her full coaching practice, Andrea is competing in triathlons and chasing her two kids around and making out with her husband, Jason. So thanks for taking a break from your busy life to join us, Andrea. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for taking a break for for making out with my husband. (laughs) (laughs) For tearing yourself away. I'm happy to be here again. Thank you for having me. Man, you put me through the ringer this week. Um, I tried. Doing that seven-day courage challenge. So what Andrea does is you sign up for these challenges, and then every day she sends you, like, this amazing worksheet, and you sort of do this worksheet, and then you post it to an online group that she organizes, and you just get all this feedback. It was really terrific. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad. I know. When you say the word, like, you get this worksheet, it sounds really cute, like we're playing school or something. <laughs> I really <laughs> Picked your butt. <laughs> yeah, lots of introspective stuff. It's all good. Yeah, asking, yeah, just having to ask myself some questions, but then to put it into words and put it into a group was, it was, I loved it. It was really good. So, highly glad, recommend that our listeners check that out. And you suggested that for our discussion tonight, we set, we focus on the subject of isolation. And that's such a great topic because, I mean, we're alcoholics, and it's a serious, serious topic for us, whether we're active in addiction or even in recovery. So mm-hmm. before we get on to that topic, how about we start by having you just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your recovery, and about your kick-ass life. Well, let's see. I'll start with the recovery part. I got sober, I forget what year it was. It must have been 2011, because I will have four years um, this September, and I have what probably many people listening have is what's considered, we call a high bottom in recovery. And I really wish that that means I just have a really nice butt. <laughs> I didn't have the proverbial rock bottom. And I sort of, um, for me, it was right after my kids were born. Well, I mean, even way before that in my 20s, I was a raging codependent. I had an eating disorder. I was a love addict to the nth degree. And um, I kind of, I, I was in recovery for those things, and that was really great. And I um, was really proud of myself and patted myself on the back that I had recovered from those things. And just as quickly as I recovered from codependence, love addiction, and my eating disorder, I, I before that I had been considered a normal drinker and my alcoholism. That's when I crossed the line. And for me, it really got heavy after, when my kids were born. And I was extremely bored being a stay-at-home mom and felt really guilty and ashamed for even feeling that. Mm. (laughs) And I, you know, of course, didn't tell anyone all the shame involved in that. And so to entertain myself, more or less, I started drinking earlier and earlier. And I had rules around it, of course, and I wouldn't start drinking until Oprah was on when she still had her show. So it was 4 (laughs) o'clock. And funny enough, I remember watching the show that Ellie was on. <laughs> Again, with the, with the, you know, right. yeah, like, nothing, not everything happens for a reason. Because <laughs> uh-huh. Ellie was like hiding bottles of Chardonnay in the washing machine, and I was like, I don't do that, so I don't have a problem. <laughs> you know, as I'm, as I'm sucking down my, my second glass at 4 o'clock or noon, and then hiding the glass in the dishwasher when my husband got home, so he would think that I was just starting at 5 o'clock. Oh, yeah. And so... For me, it was it was the whisper. Um, my dad is in recovery, um, and I I saw what happened, and he also had a high bottom, and I kind of knew it was in my DNA. And and I think for me also, the work that I do, I had just started my business, and I was 
sort of knee deep in personal development. Like the whisper was pretty loud, and it's sort of. And I know that this gets talked about in recovery. It's like sort of when you turn the light on, it's really hard to turn it back off and pretend that it was it's not there. And so I called. I think you've had Courtney Webster on before. She's one of my dear yep. friends, and I called her, and she she had a good decade of recovery under her belt, and I I was um, so afraid to tell her that I thought I had a problem and thought she would make it a big deal. And like, oh, my God, what are you going to do? What should we do? <laughs> it's going to be all dramatic. <laughs> she wasn't. It was, like, so not a big deal. She's like, okay. And she helped me through it. And um, I had one kind of dramatic relapse that only lasted a day. And then I officially got sober um, September 27th, 2011. And it's been a wild ride. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Huh. And congratulations on your upcoming four-year anniversary at the end of this summer. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about isolation because, you know, just from what you just said, you know it well. I mean, I was just explaining to someone today that before, for a lot of us, before our alcoholic symptoms really bloom, we work our way through a lot of whack-a-mole behaviors like eating disorders, relationship mm-hmm. behavior. And so by mm-hmm. the time, in retrospect, we can see it, but at the time, we think we're handling everything, you know? Right. And meanwhile, we're isolating more and more and more because we have all this stuff to hide. So how do you define isolation, and why do we do it? I define isolation. When I talk about isolation, I specifically talk about the women that I see in the work that I do, and whether it's a one-on-one client or it's, you know, in the free seven-day challenges that I do or the classes that I teach. And I believe now we are living in a culture that puts so much incredible pressure on us as women that there is no way possible that we can live up to the expectations that we put on ourselves, that our culture puts on us. So instead of reaching out for help, we hide and we don't tell anyone what we're going through or we default on other behaviors that we think are going to help us, but really they're not. And one of those is drinking and, and or any kind of numbing behavior. And so I think it's, you know, and I wrote a blog post about this, and what we think is that nobody wants to hear about our problems. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that everyone else doesn't have these same issues that we do or doesn't feel the same way that that we do and we're too embarrassed and or ashamed. Um, And we also feel like we can just power through it. You know, if I lock and load, I can just put on my my cape and I can deal with this all by myself. Mm -hmm. And we can't. Like the truth is, is that we can't. Like we were put on this earth to connect with other people and to help each other. And I think we've gotten so far away from that and this whole world of perfectionism and control and, you know, people pleasing and performing and hustling. And those are the things that I call them like our default behaviors Mm -hmm. instead of reaching out for help and instead of having a spiritual practice and et cetera and all these things that um, help us in the world. I mean, whether we're in recovery or not, we we just aren't doing them. So by default, we are isolating and perfecting and controlling, et cetera. Isn't it ironic we have more communication than ever? I mean, my my grandmother lived on a farm in the middle of nowhere with six kids, mm-hmm. and she didn't drive, and she didn't have a phone. I mean, she was isolated. But <laughs> I, here we have, like, how many devices and people all and around us. So many ways to communicate, and yet we isolate. It's ironic, isn't it? 
It is it is strange. It's like and we're still so incredibly lonely. And I, I think about um I think about the way that I acted, like I'll give you an example, like the way that I acted in my, my former relationship and I blamed and blamed and blamed and blamed and really all I wanted, I wanted something else. Like I wanted people to know that I was afraid most of the time. I wanted people to know that I had pretty severe anxiety most of the time. I wanted people to know that I felt really lonely and I just wanted someone to look me in the face and say, it's going to be okay, and I get it. Like you're, you're not alone here. But instead, I was so codependent that I tried to control every single person around me, and if they would only just act like I wanted them to and say the things that I wanted and do the things that I wanted, then everything would be great. So it's insanity if you think about it. We don't just say yeah. how we feel. So you wanted people to sort of intuitively know what was wrong, but and yet you're doing everything to hide it. Right. Is that the behavior? And it, what it all comes down to, yeah, what it all comes down to, and, and, uh, and I'll just throw us all into the deep end, you know, within the first 13 minutes of the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the work that I do is based on the, the research of, of Dr. Brene Brown and, and certified in her work, and her work blows my mind because mm-hmm. it's, it's the thing that nobody really likes to talk about, but we all have, and that's shame. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's why we isolate is because, and, and you know, you can't talk about recovery without talking about shame. <laughs> and um, that's what a lot of it comes down to is we're ashamed. We're ashamed of who we are as people. Um, we're ashamed of where we are in our lives. We're ashamed of things that we have done. and The list can go on and on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't want to talk about Andrea, it. Andrea, I think it's, this is Ellie. I think it's really interesting too because when I first heard about isolation, I didn't even understand it as a as a thing or a concept or anything until I got into recovery was the first time, and I I really thought of it as physical isolation, you know. And I I kind of self selected mm-hmm. out of that because I'm always out and about and I do a million things and I talk to a million people, and so you know I'm not an isolator. It's kind of I disqualified myself from it without fully mm-hmm. understanding the impact of what you were just describing, which is emotional isolation and exactly. you know, the, sort of the, the escaping and the numbing. And so, I mean, you can take, and I, I, from my experience, emotional isolation in my case and in many people's cases almost invariably leads to physical isolation, especially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. within the context of addiction. Um, but then, you know, the, emo- the escaping and numbing behavior can actually look incredibly quote-unquote healthy to the outside world i mean i my relapse began with unbelievable codependency and workaholism i mean that's Mm. you know everybody thought i was at the top of my game and i'm running around and i'm doing all these things and starting companies and my world domination plan was in full effect and so people who (laughs) you know you almost had it ellie yeah, I was so close. Gosh, you know, just a couple more weeks, I would have had it. <laughs> but what it really was was, you know, it was a another maladaptive way to hide from my own my own feelings. And and um, I love Brene Brown too. And one of the my favorite things that I've heard her sp- say before is probably in her books too. Is that one of the ways that shame speaks to us is to say, "Who do you think you are?" Mm-hmm. And so it's not only just shame of things that I've done that are obviously wrong or that, you know, I would like to hide from the world because of, you know, things I did in my active addiction or even in recovery. But it was also, I felt so much shame even as I was, quote, unquote, accomplishing things. Like I just, oh yeah there was, the, the, my inner voice was just sort of like, yeah, who do you think you are that you can start a company, mm-hmm. or that you can do this? And it would just make me 
isolate further and numb even more. And so there's so many complex layers to both the concept of isolation and of shame. Yes. Because um, it doesn't just look like somebody sitting alone in their room in the dark. You know, it, it comes mm-hmm. in so many more forms. And that's really common what you just described, Elliot. I'm, I'm really glad that you touched on that because guess who just had a conversation with her therapist about that? Me. <laughs> it's the shame of, and I don't know if this is how you describe it, but describe it as, as like the fear and the shame of shining too bright. And yep. it's like, I don't want to make other people uncomfortable with <laughs> with being too yep. shiny. And um, it, it's kind of like we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. And so I, I, the remedy for that and for all of it really is speaking it. And, and Brene tells us shame can't survive being spoken. And that goes really for anything. That goes you know, anything you're dealing with in recovery, whether it's you know, the stigma of, of recovery in and of itself. But, um, I mean, even like before we started recording the show and I was telling you guys, you know, that summer's, summer's hard for me. And so if I find myself like not really active in my recovery and, and I was telling you we went to a, a holiday barbecue and, you know, there was tons of beer being passed around and, and wine and, and, you know, I get and, – and you guys probably all know. It's just, like, it's it's not even really that I think I'm going to drink at all. It's just that that little thought of, gosh, that would really taste good. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and so for me, I immediately, instead of not saying anything, because that that's a form of isolation. It's just like you were saying, that emotional isolation, like, oh, I'm not – it's really no big deal. Not, it doesn't matter. Nobody wants to hear me talk about that again. I went home and told my husband. I was like, oh, that happened, and I think I really need to go hit a meeting because it's just, for me, it's kind of about telling on myself <laughs> for accountability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it counteracts that, that other voice that you're talking about, like, I got this. I can do this. Mm-hmm. I've got it. I can do you know, it on my own. And that I have mm-hmm. to power through it. I can I can go it on my own, um, which I think is just the way that our that we talk to ourselves to avoid feeling that vulnerability and that. Right. That, None know, of us make it around. I mean, that's why you get so can't. many listeners to this show every single week is because we can't do it alone. We want to hear stories of, of other people. We want to, we want to know so desperately that we are not the only ones that feel like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that's true. I know that's true because there is nothing worse than feeling like you're the only one. And that is isolation, that feeling like nobody understands where I am. And, like, any alcoholic knows what that feels like. And and that will keep you drinking and keep you sick. Yeah. I yep. almost think that that, like, I really told myself that I was strong, that, I, you know, I didn't think of it as isolating. I thought I was being strong. And, <clears throat> and I think that, in a way, like, the addictive part of my brain really used that to keep me drinking because mm-hmm. I really thought that was my superpower, you know, I remember sitting in a board meeting and it was like 3.30 coming up quarter to four. And in my head, I'm thinking, this meeting needs to end on mm-hmm. schedule because I've got to get home and cook supper for my kids. And I look around this table at like 12 guys and I'm thinking, these guys are going to keep talking all night because they don't have to go home and cook dinner for their kids. And I just like start having this little dialogue in my head, you know, like I was isolating in that group and resenting and just working up for that drink when I got home. And then I would get home, and I'd physically isolate because nobody could understand what I just, And still be mad at those guys. I wanted to stay mad at them, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could have said, nope, guys, you know, we got to end on schedule because 
because we need to be on time. But no, mm-hmm. I like some part of my brain had a vested interest in perpetuating whatever kind of isolation I could create, whether it was in a right. room with other people or home alone, or it was just like a voice that kind of kept me going. And on on the surface, told me you're strong, like you're stronger than all these people. You don't. Well, you we don't get praised for that. The meeting you cook dinner. Yeah, mm-hmm. we get praised yeah. for that as women and as mothers and. And I think what it all boils down to is vulnerability because, and like Brene teaches us and her research has showed that the greatest measure of courage is actually vulnerability. So it would have been really vulnerable for you to speak up in that room full of men and say that you needed to wrap it up. I mean, you don't have to say the reason, but just that you needed to wrap it up. That would have been courageous and vulnerable. Right. And I think when I read Brene Brown for the first time and it, it just turned my thinking on its ear, I'm sure everyone had that same feeling to think of vulnerability as courage because I was mm-hmm. because we are so vested in in mm-hmm. strength as being isolation, and so when we flip it around that way it's it just it's a game changer it changes everything right it is and and for anyone that's new to her work who's listening, I highly recommend the gift of imperfection that's a that's a quicker read, and she talks about the ten guideposts for wholehearted living and daring greatly. Um, both of those, I think, are, are the best. Really helpful steps. So what are some of the steps that you walk your clients through to sort of bring themselves out of isolating behaviors? Can we work our way up to it mm-hmm. or just dive yeah. in? What's the, what's the best thing to do? Well, I think it starts with taking inventory of who you have in your life because, unfortunately, not all of us are blessed with people that we can trust enough to share our stories with. And um, Brene tells us, really, sharing your story, it's about sharing the right story with the right person at the right time. Because I think what what tends to happen is, you know, you might listen to a podcast like this and you get all pumped up and motivated and you're like, I'm going to share my story with my sister or my husband when he gets home from work. <laughs> and it's like, wah, wah, and it, like, and it doesn't work out. So that's what I really would tell everyone to remember. It's the right story with the right person at the right time. Right. And, and, and just know that um, if you're at that place where you don't have that person and you are finding yourself hugely isolating, just know that you're not alone. I think it's really common with women you know, when we come out of college and we're long past those years and maybe we've moved and we just don't have those people anymore or we've made a lot of, like, virtual friendships, but we don't have those real-life friendships anymore. And my advice to you is to keep trying and putting yourself out there and take baby steps to find those people and, and hopefully that person. And, and, it, and I'm not – I think people make up that they need to have, like, five or six of these friends that they can share their most vulnerable stories with. And that's really not the case. It's one person. Like, my hope is that you just have that one person that you can come to that will not judge you, that will not shame you, that will not try to one-up you or, or just really kind of make you feel worse. And, and to be honest, like, sometimes that happens because when we share our story with someone, don't get the response that we need. I would say 99% of the time what has happened is that we have struck something in their own vulnerability. Like, they can't be with their own vulnerability, so they certainly can't be with ours. Like, I, and I can, I know that as a fact because that's how I used to be. Like, I couldn't be with my own feelings ever, ever. So I can surely not be with yours. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to hate on those people 
because <laughs> they need help. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's really where I would start. So, and what about when if we do reach out to the wrong person and don't get a good response? I would think that the knee-jerk reaction reaction would be to pull back even farther and isolate even more. So then how do we Mm -hmm. find the courage to just come back and rethink that? I think um, it's about, that's a really, really tough one too, Jane. I'm glad you asked it. And it's really about, first and foremost, feeling the feelings that you are feeling. So Mm -hmm. um, recognize when you are, in a place where you're like, well, I should, I should. And I see this a lot in personal development. I see people get really excited and they're doing the work and they're feeling really great and then they have a setback. And this is probably true for recovery too. They have a setback and they feel really bad about it. Like I should be beyond this by now. I should be able to get back up quickly. And that's really not the case. Like you're still human. Like My best friend Amy calls it the human hall pass where <laughs> you're allowed to throw a fit and you're allowed to eat an entire box of Thin Mint. You're allowed to, um, I hope to God you don't drink, <laughs> but just in the human hall task of just feeling whatever feelings you have. And, um, and, and you know, that's why we love places like um, the Booze Free Brigade on Facebook and, um, and podcasts like this where there's forums for you to reach out and just tell your story of what happened and, and just keep keep trying. Right. I totally agree that it can find with it can start with you know even if it's not vocalizing it to somebody else if you haven't found that right person at the right time it's finding a, a community of me too you know and, and for right. me it started somehow like after my relapse I had that that big big cloak of the shoulds you know I should have known better and I shouldn't have done this and I should have you know who, who do I think I am in the in the wrong way and um I had to do a lot of just writing I had to get it out in in journals that nobody would ever read but me just to access Mm -hmm. what it was that I was feeling so much shame about and then to be able to listen to podcasts or join internet communities or just become you know I did a lot of reading of books I would search on Amazon for something specific just so that I could read you know just to read an article or a book about something somebody going through something that I'm going through it gave me that I'm not alone feeling Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. For me, the voice of isolation starts with that feeling other than, you know, I'm terminally unique. I'm special in some awful yeah. way. And, you know, when you were describing that story about being at the barbecue or wherever the party and the beer being passed around and it's not that you feel like drinking, but for me, the little voice would say, you know, but I'm different than them. They get to drink and I don't. It doesn't mm-hmm. have anything to do with mm-hmm. wanting to drink. It's just feeling different. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a feeling of that today. I was scrolling through Facebook just, you know, idly, nothing else to do. I was waiting for my daughter, and I'm going through a divorce, and all of a sudden, every single thing I saw on Facebook was a happily married couple. They were everywhere. You know, (laughs) nothing's changed on my Facebook page since yesterday or tomorrow, but today, I was in the Mm -hmm. frame of mind of, I am the only one who feels this way, and that's that's the voice of isolation and the voice of shame and, you know, self-selecting out of how everybody else feels, and you know, and so I'm. I have different friends for different reasons. I have somebody I can talk to that's gone through a divorce, and I can call and say, you know, tell me again why I'm not the only person on the planet mm-hmm. who feels this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but recognizing those little, those little isolation triggers, those kind of little cues in my inner dialogue that tell me, wait a minute, you're doing this thing again, where 
you're stepping out of the circle. You know, the circle doesn't mm-hmm. change that much, but I step out of it and I decide that I'm yeah. going to just go feel sorry for myself over here. And I think yeah. I love the idea of a human hall pass because I'm totally entitled to have a human hall pass. But for me, I, I have to be sharing it with somebody. Put a I have to be. On it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to. It has to have. You know, if I have too many human hall passes all by myself in my bedroom, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of defeating the purpose. Right. It has to be heard. There's definitely a limit. Yeah, for sure. Right. I'm glad that you you pointed that out. And I think I, what you're practicing right there, Ellie, is you know, to give you a gold star and a high five, is you're practicing shame resilience. <laughs> And that this is what I do. I mean, this is actually towards the end of the program that I do. Um, it's called the Daring Way program. And we learn what shame resilience is. And I'm not saying you're going to learn this in the five minutes. I'm going to explain it. But <laughs> there's, there's kind of this step-by-step process, which I all know we love step-by-step process. And the first one is to really understand what you just said, is like what your triggers are. And, uh, you know, and for you it's like seeing married couples or for someone else that might be, um, you know, for me, one of my triggers is is trying to balance uh, being a working mom, which I do imperfectly mm. and messy, and I try my hardest, and I, I don't get it right all the time. But it's one of my triggers. So it's like if I get, um, if something happens where, like my daughter went to the stage for like a month where she was like having, all, out of nowhere was having meltdowns in the morning when I was dropping her off at preschool, that's a trigger for me. And so what happens next is I start to feel shame, shame of, like, wanting to, to work, shame of having this child who's having a meltdown who's five years old, who she, you know, all, all of these things are going through my mind. So what isolation would look like is that I wouldn't tell a soul what I'm going through, and I would beat myself up and beat myself up to a pulp to the point where I could actually face a relapse. So what uh-huh. shame resilience looks like is I get in the car and I cry and I reach out with the right story to the right person at the right time. And I'm blessed enough to have two people that I can reach out to, my friend Courtney that I mentioned and my friend Amy. And I call them and I tell them what happened. And they know me well enough now that I, I certainly don't need you to fix it. And if I, if I need advice, I will ask you. I just need you to hear how shitty I feel. I feel like the worst mother in the world at this moment. And yep. then about... Um, just, and I totally lost my train of thought because it's past my bedtime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's um, speaking shame is really what it is and, um, and knowing what your triggers are and moving forward. And that's what, that's what courage is, really, is speaking it. I love how you said that but I don't need them to fix it either because Mm-mm. I think – one of the things that keeps me from reaching out, I have I have two little favorite things that I fall back on. One is I don't need to call like like if for for me it might be my sponsor or somebody who's helping me in recovery. I don't need to call her because I know what she's gonna say. I know what she's gonna tell mm-hmm. me. She's gonna tell me to do X, <laughs> Y, and Z, and I can just do those things on my own. You know, I don't really need to speak what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And the second one is there's nothing anybody can do about it anyway. And right. instead of just that's not you know, true. Being, it's, and that's not true. Just speaking it. Mm-hmm. As soon as I speak how I'm feeling, I feel better. I feel, yeah. you know, even if nothing's materially changed, that's definitely, it's a it's a release, it's a freedom. Um, but that's, those are two little voices of isolation for me is why bother and, you know, mm-hmm. you know what they're going to say anyway. Because it well, wants me and, and alone. Is, I think, right, and exactly. And I think this is an important thing to touch on too is what we've been sort of dancing around is empathy. And empathy is the thing that makes us feel 
not alone. Empathy is what makes us feel like we belong and um, that we're connected as humans because what could have happened is if I called Courtney and told her crying, I'm like, Sydney's having these meltdowns and I feel like the worst mother. I feel like maybe I should just quit my business and leave it all behind so I can just stay home with her. And instead of her, you know, she could do one of several things. She could say, oh, my gosh, let me tell you what happened to my son. This is the worst. And, like, she tries to one-up me. And maybe she didn't even mean to, but, like, that's really what's happening. Or she could say something like, you're crazy. That's probably not what happened. You're probably kind of overdrawn, or, you know, like, you're exaggerating. You're a great mom. Don't worry about it. Um, mm. In which, you know, like, I probably made these responses. You know, we've all kind of screwed up empathy before because empathy, I used to think, like, people were born with that skill. Like, just basically Mother Teresa had it, and that was about it. You know, like, it, it, and I remember being in, in life coach training and seeing people express empathy, and I was like, oh, I don't know how to do that. Like, I was not born with that bone in my body. But, and I, I love that Brene teaches us that empathy is a skill that we practice because it does not come naturally. Like, we, we, we are compassionate creatures, but we are not born empathetic, and it's, it's really like how to speak it. And what it looks like, basically, is, is, if, is so Ellie, say you came to me with that same story, and your kids are having meltdowns, and you feel like you're the worst mother in the world. What I would say to you is, oh, honey, that sucks. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you're having to deal with that. What do you need yeah. me for today? What can right. I do to help you? Yeah. And in that moment, it's like, it's just like that deep breath of somebody heard me and somebody saw me and didn't say that I'm crazy or wrong. Like someone is not making you wrong for how you're feeling. That's what empathy is. And so we, we have to practice this. We have to practice it all the time. I mean, I've screwed it up before. And the great thing about that, too, is that we can circle back and try it again. And to someone that we probably should have practiced empathy with and didn't, like maybe we went up to them or poo-pooed them or whatever, you can circle back and say, hey, remember when you came to me with that story um, about wanting to drink again and I, you know, said X, Y, or Z, I'm really sorry I wasn't there for you and I want a chance to do it over. That's Jean, You know what's really interesting to me as we as we are talking about this is that we've gone – from asking how to reach out for help to talking about how to respond with empathy. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes me think about recovery and service, of how one of the ways we stay sober long-term is by helping others or giving service. And what I hear you saying here really reinforces that, is that how we learn to empathize with others helps us break our isolation and be more vulnerable. And, like, it really does all work in a circle, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. And I, I'm thinking about um, one, uh, one guest we've had on the show is um, Dr. John Kelly from the Recovery Research Institute. And, he, you know, he says there's there's science that proves that what's so effective about recovery groups is the person-to-person interaction, that, like, something, some elevated thing happens between two people that are having a shared experience and it mm-hmm. it takes the uh, chances of recovery to a higher and higher level of success mm-hmm. when people connect in that way so there's there's i mean this isn't fluffy stuff you're talking about here this is this is like this is seriously the bones of how we progress as humans through whatever challenge we're facing mhm 
I love one that. of the things I, that I, I thought I of, Andrea. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Oh, what I, one of the things that I thought of when you talked about like the knee-jerk reactions that we have and how you know we can be compassionate, but empathy doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. And it was I've heard other people talk about this, and it's something I experienced myself when when I was first going to recovery meetings. And for those who aren't familiar with the format, somebody will share how they're you know how they're doing whether it's about their recovery or or their day or their feelings and the standard form is that you you don't respond you know it's called you don't cross talk you don't raise your hand and mm-hmm. answer them you don't try to so basically people are just sort of placing their feelings like in the middle of a circle basically is what it feels like and then everyone thanks them for their share and you move on to the next person and that made me profoundly uncomfortable in the beginning because mm-hmm. As a codependent yeah. person or somebody who wants emotional perfectionism for everybody, you know, I, I couldn't, it was very, very difficult for me just to sit with other people's feelings, let alone my own. I didn't know how to mm. sit with my own yet. So how am I supposed mm-hmm. to sit with his or hers? And and did you want to fix and, um, everybody, Ellie? I wanted wanna... to fix everybody. I wanted to save everybody. And I, you know, that's a great distraction from fixing and saving myself too, of course. Mm-hmm. And there was another practice that we did when I was in in-house treatment and it was an all women's um, treatment facility. And we had a, a small group where we did some really, really, we dug really deep and, did, you know, really went back to, some root causes of addiction and so people were sharing profound things and inevitably somebody everybody cried at some point and you weren't allowed to touch the person or offer them a tissue or -hmm. do anything you had to just let them sit and cry and afterwards after you know the session's over we could talk about it but it was practicing having our own feelings and accessing our own feelings and saying them out loud um and not to gain any kind of response or not to have or have the person, the people listening to it, not have any kind of kind of codependent or um, response of their own. But it, it's absolutely against human nature to do that. It's yeah. really, I mean, I want I want them to stop crying. I want them to feel better. I want, you know, it's you, we want to fix things. We want to make them better. Mm-hmm. Anything to avoid just feeling the feeling. That's yeah. like the antithesis of what we like to do. I can see the benefit of that, and and I, I have been there, you know, in those meetings where it's so incredibly uncomfortable, and you can just feel the tension in the room. But on the other side of the same coin, like how what I do is, and I love what people do to me is um, make eye contact, like when yeah. you're sharing or when you're done sharing, you just nod your head. Even that can be pretty profound. And how awesome is it when you're at a recovery meeting, and someone comes up to you after the meeting and says hey, I love what you shared today. I could so relate to your story. Thank you for sharing it. Like, that's oh, it's empathy. amazing. That's expressing yep. empathy. Or when, even when you do it for someone else. Like, I, there's been meetings where, like, I can't wait to walk up to somebody and, and just and tell them, like, thank you. I and mean, that's all you have to do. So that right there, for any of you listening who are, like, you know, thinking about practicing it, just do that. And, you know, don't fix it. Don't give advice. <laughs> it's okay to right. share your own story. And that's where it gets kind of tricky because people are like, okay, you know, the whole one-upping thing, like, is it okay to share my own story? Like, yeah, it is okay. But just um, I think it has its place and just kind of do a gut check. And, um, and just acknowledging the other person's story as well, just so they know that they've been heard and seen. Well, and it's the feelings too. It's it's having it, it's people. Their stories can be so different, and the facts can be so different, but the feelings are so often the same. I mean, this thread of isolation or emotional 
isolation and vulnerability and shame. I mean, it doesn't. The circumstances can be different, but the feelings are the same. And when I did call that friend after I was having my my divorce meltdown, and I was saying things like, you know, I should be beyond this by now, and I don't. I just want these feelings to go away. And this is why does this hurt so much? And she just said, "Oh, honey, it hurts because it's supposed to hurt. You know, this is gonna—it's mm-hmm. gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt for a little while, but it's going to get better as long as you go through it and not around it. You know that it—it mm-hmm. it was such a counterintuitive response, and it helped me so much. Like, of course, you feel awful. You—you have every right to feel awful right now, but it's not always going to be this way. But right now, it is. Mm-hmm. And that was you know, the kind of advice that I wouldn't have understood a few years ago. I would have thought, you're supposed to yeah. tell me how it's going to be, you know, how how I can fix this. And I just needed to know <laughs> that she had felt this way and that she no longer feels this way now. But that, you know, it's that's kind of where that emotional empathy comes in. Right, exactly. It's, it's interesting. So um, speaking of Brene, she wrote a new book that comes out in late August, and I got an advanced copy and um, I was re- I just even like barely through the introduction and she's basically what this book is about is the question that you asked me earlier is the people that, you know, when you fall down, Brene, when she talks about vulnerability, she refers to it as the arena and the arena can be anything in your life, like whatever is vulnerable. Um, like what do the people have in common that keep getting back up after they fall? Because if you are vulnerable, eventually you're going to fall and you're going to fail and you're going to get your butt kicked out there in the arena. And so um, what she said in the introduction, and she hasn't gotten too much into the meat. I haven't gotten into it yet, but she said, she said, I'll give you a teaser. The one thing that these people have in common is that they are very curious about their feelings and emotions, and they look straight at them and work through them. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. And we can't do that (laughs) if we're not in recovery. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Right. I would. I keep looking for that this, shortcut that doesn't exist. Yeah, dang it! <laughs> I had this sort of epiphany today in the grocery store. I, was, I knew we were going to be having this conversation, and I was tossing around some thoughts, and it seemed really profound when I thought it. So I'm going to try and put it in words and see if it sounds as brilliant and if you think that I'm onto something here. What I was kind of coming around to was that um, a lot of us in recovery look back and realize that we had a lot of codependent behaviors that we sort of were not recognizing when we were in active addiction or even into recovery. And I wondered if some of the isolating behaviors were sort of a a, a reaction to our codependency as well in that like maybe we were starting to become aware that like something is not quite right about the way that I relate to other people and I'm always getting hurt by that so I'm going to protect myself by mm-hmm. isolating. Like, I almost wonder if the isolating behavior for me came sort of late and then, you know, right as my addiction sort of started coming to a head. And I'm just wondering that if it was, if, if it was almost the coming to a head, you know, the, especially the codependency part of it where I was just like, why does everybody suck so much? I'm just going to stay away from everybody. But I mm-hmm. knew it was something about me. So I'm wondering about that if there's a if the isolation is you know if it's tied up with um codependency as well. I mean to some degree as you said about our society like and women in particular we're sort of raised to be codependent to be really self-aware and self-critical and really define ourselves the way we look and how others see us but then we kind of hate that too. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing we want so much in the world and the one thing we're deathly afraid of at the same time. 
Yeah, exactly. And it hurts, yeah. right? Like you can't live like that. So it yeah. kind of has to come to a head, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, and life hurts too. I think that um, I think that what happens, well, and to, to kind of touch on what you were saying is I feel like um, isolation and even codependence, I guess, but definitely isolation is sort of like this bulletproof vest that we put on. And some of us sleep in it. <laughs> we get up every morning, and and for other people, you know, it depends. Like my 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 big my biggest ones were perfectionism and control, with sprinkled mm-hmm. with a little bit of isolation. I don't. I mean, I've always been like pouring out my feelings, kind of person, but I don't want to hear about yours. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> that's how I always was, because um, I can't be with them. So I I think that it's definitely like a like a boundary, like maybe like deep down we feel like we're setting boundaries, but it's what we're doing is we're, we're disconnecting a lot. We're disconnecting immensely from other people and we can't, we can't survive like that. We certainly can't be happy. We certainly can't be sober. Um, well, we may be sober, but we, we can't be healthy and sober in, in that way. So I'm not sure if I, if that relates at all to what you were saying, but um, yeah. it's definitely yeah. like a defense mechanism for sure. Yeah, yeah. We're all really just Jean, what you said, protect What you said made me think of early recovery, though, too, because I know that there are a lot of people who listen to this show who are you know, in very early recovery or in the early stages of trying to get sober, and it's one of the greatest challenges that's faced by us when we, st- when we lose our anesthesia because so much of what we're talking about, perfectionism and control and codependency and, you know, overworking, and the, these are all things that we drank at for mm-hmm. a lot of us. And, right. mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, Andrew, you talked about having a high bottom and, and we've had a show about high-functioning alcoholics and things like this. I mean, there's, for many people, there's no visible sign of the, um, you know, what they're drinking at, the, you know, the, the sole thing that's really making them reach a bottom is that how crushing, soul-crushing it is to constantly be engaging in these behaviors that aren't serving us at all. Mm-hmm. So then we put the drink down and we're not we don't have our numbing agent or anesthesia and all of these feelings just come to the surface. And I, I think to a degree, I mean, I might be extrapolating a little bit of what you said, Jean, but that the isolation can be almost kind of like a hard shell protective mechanism mm-hmm. that we use, um, certainly when we're drinking, but then in early recovery also. And it can become extremely dangerous for people in early recovery because then it just feeds that sense that they're the only ones feeling mm-hmm. that the way that they feel and they're they you know, that's when the power of what Andrea's been talking about or recovery community or finding people that can understand how you feel becomes so critical. Yeah. Um exactly. the mm-hmm. the speaking of, of the feelings and how we feel, I mean we've numbed that out for years, many of us, with alcohol yeah. and other avoidance behaviors and then we put the alcohol down and boom, there it is. And so isolation would be a really natural first inclination. I'm just going to shut the doors and the windows and tuck myself mm-hmm. in where I can't get hurt. And just don't get out of bed. Um, yeah. Just right. don't get out of bed when, in fact, you know, the reason why we have podcasts like this or things that, we, you know, that we've been talking about in finding a community of people, it's, it's, it might be possible to stay sober in that environment, but it certainly wouldn't be enjoyable at all. And mm-hmm. so it's practicing the speaking of shame and the practicing vulnerability and practicing empathy for other people and 
those things come hand in hand with new sobriety and it can feel very challenging. Um, but it's also, it's the, the rewards, at least in my experience, were, were fairly exponential because, yeah, you know, it's all brand new and you're, you're not expecting, um, or I wasn't, I should say, I wasn't expecting that unbelievable feeling of inclusion that I got when I finally got brave enough to talk about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's. I don't know if that's make, making any sense at all, but um, I was thinking Actually, about our audience that might be newly sober and how isolation is, th- this is why it's so attractive and so dangerous at the same time. Right. Ironically, it, that it makes, makes perfect sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. For, to me, too. And I, I was going to say that I actually was exactly that person because my blog, I mean, the, the the subtitle of my blog is how I secretly quit my secret habit of secretly drinking, right? <laughs> like, right, I was right. going to do this alone by blogging, and I stupidly thought, no one will ever find my blog. There's a million blogs. No one's ever going to find this. And it was the community that was created by readers of that blog and the dialogue that was started there that opened my mind to realizing that I did need other people in order Mm -hmm. to get sober. And so I kept going with that blog to kind of help connect other people that were looking for the same thing, that were drawn to that idea, and to help them find the power of other people too. So it's ironic because it is our knee-jerk when we start out. Well, and I I think what contributes to it are a few things. You know, it's the stigma of of being an alcoholic. And um, like I was saying in the very beginning of the show, it's like, you know, we can go at it alone. I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten from women um, and reaching out for help. And I ask them, like, what are you you doing for support? And a lot of them say nothing. Or they're just going to, you know, they're just going to get sober on their own. And I just, my heart breaks for them. Because I remember, I remember the first time something hit the fan when I was sober. And I remember crying on the phone to my best friend, and she said, I didn't even realize it at first. She goes, is this the first time that you, like, really felt your feelings sober? And I remember kind of, like, mm-hmm. stopping crying. It was like the record scratch. And I was like, <laughs> it is. And it, it was like, I felt like I was in, like, talk about the glass case of emotion. But it was it was like someone screaming in my ear. Like I felt like the feelings were so intense. Like there was, and I'm, I hope I'm not scaring anybody listening who's like newly sober, but it just, I was like, I can't do this. And the thing is, is that you can, like I survived. <laughs> All of us have survived. But my point is, is that it is a thousand times easier to reach out for support. And that's why recovery works so well. Well, and how much better it is to be screaming on the phone, I can't do this to somebody else, than to be quietly drinking and thinking, I won't do this. You know, that, I won't do this, exactly. Even, even while we're protesting all the way and saying, I can't, I can't, I can't, we are doing it. That's you mm-hmm. know because we're not mm-hmm. drinking over it or doing something else to avoid it. You know, I've, I've said a thousand times during the course of this divorce, like, I can't do this, I can't do this. But they just, you know, but I am. You know, <laughs> one day I'm sure <laughs> I'm saying it right and I'm sharing it and I'm, you know, every day I wake up and some things feel better. And, you know, sometimes things I, I've said before, too, that on the on the early recovery trajectory, sometimes as we're getting better, we actually feel worse because mm-hmm. we're feeling all of our feelings. But that eventually the feelings catch up to the other ways that our lives are improving. I mean, they come back together again, but. You know, we we're going through it for the first time, and it's it's not 
if it was easy, everybody would do it. That's what I answer. Right. But <laughs> nobody would do it if it wasn't worth it. <laughs> it is. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you, that's an important encouragement for people that are listening that are really feeling hard feelings for the first time is to remember that, yeah, we took away the anesthetic that numbed our bad feelings, but it also inadvertently was numbing all our good feelings, too. Oh, yeah. So we do have Absolutely. a greater capacity to feel joy than we did before. I mean, I, I drank away any feeling. I didn't want to feel anything. Mm-hmm. I didn't trust myself with anything real. And um, in time, I was like, oh, I'm laughing. I'm laughing, mm-hmm. and it's not mm-hmm. a cackle, you know? Yesterday, I was driving this this crazy VW from the 70s that we have, and I was terrified driving it, and I was driving it down the highway, and I kept honking the horn, meep, 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 and I kept shouting to my husband, I'm driving this, like, I'm doing this, and I, (laughs) it was so goofy, but I was, I felt so happy, I don't ever Mm -hmm. remember feeling that kind of happiness about such a stupid thing um, while I was drinking, like, you get your emotions back. And the yeah. good ones really <sighs> do make up for the bad ones. They really do. That's so true. That's so true. I'm so glad you said that. And what a, what a great thing to, to talk about. And it's so true because I probably two or three times a week, like we make a point to have dinner with, sit down as a family. My kids are still little. They're five and seven. And I sit down and I look at their faces and I am overwhelmed with joy for what I have mm-hmm. and the love that is in that kitchen. And even like dance parties, you know, I have little dance parties with my kids and they think it's Aww. funny and there's the, that song Sweet Pea by Amos and I just, I can't, I can't even with them. And I never, like, I would I would be drinking and it would be fun, but I let's face it, like I was drunk and like not really, it wasn't, I wasn't really feeling anything. I didn't, I didn't want to. I was too afraid. And so that's, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because, and that's what brain's research shows us too, is that we can't collectively numb. Mm-hmm. Wish we could. <laughs> <laughs> and we I tried, I tried every which way. It doesn't work. <laughs> Our listeners need to know, Andrea Owen, that you are one hella good dancer. I've oh, seen some you. moves. <laughs> I've seen some moves on your page. And, I have uh, too. Yeah. She's good. She, uh, she's got it. Thank you. <laughs> Practical question here. How do we differentiate between if we're isolating and when we're practicing, you know, the good self-care, self-care. of a little bit of solitude? Mm-hmm. What, what's the fine line between those and how do we That's make sure question. that we're getting them? Mm-hmm. I'm glad you asked that. I would do a gut check because I think a lot of times our intuition knows our inner wisdom and so just get quiet and ask yourself. And I think, too, if you have a tendency, like if topic is really resonating with you and you're like, oh, my gosh, hand raised, I'm an isolator, um, put a container around it. And, like, how much do you really need for self-care? Is it, you know, for me personally, if I'm, like, at a conference or something um, and it's, like, a lot of socializing or a lot of speaking, uh, I need I need a good a whole entire evening to not talk to anybody um and like I don't even I don't even want to like stay with my kids you know like I don't want to talk to my husband I can't even think so I need an entire evening so that's personally how I feel so if you need a little bit more than that um like I would question it if you're sitting over there saying I need four full days <laughs> by myself <laughs> 
you, you know, like, you know yourself well enough to know. I see little signs sometimes, too, and they can be pretty subtle, but one of the first signs is that my phone ringing makes me crazy, just the sound of it. Mm-hmm. it doesn't, I, like, I don't even know who's on the other end, but I don't want to talk to anybody. Is my first thought. Like, or and it's even worse if I look down and it's somebody that I normally like to talk to, and I go, "Ugh, I'm not going to get that." That's a you know, red flag for you. Yeah, that you need. To yeah, but yeah, like the, the beginning of sort of like, don't bother me. Like when the whole world is bothering me, it's me that needs the gut check. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I get I get senses of that, or you know, it, it's it feels almost like really really mild depression a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. You know that I get overstimulated too easily, or I'm, you know, I'm spending. If I've gone, um, you know, a couple of days and I haven't really talked to the people that I normally talk to, I mean, those are usually, and I don't feel like it. Those are signs that I'm starting to, again, step. I'm stepping away from the circle. The circle isn't going anywhere, but I'm choosing not to engage in it. Okay, and what are you going to do next time you catch yourself doing that, Ellie? <laughs> what tool from tonight? Being a life coach. Look at you, what girl. What tool? What tool am I going to use? Oh well, I'm going to talk to somebody. Definitely. One of yeah. the things that I did. I did this. I was. I was kind of I had one of those colds that you're not so sick. You can't. You know, you're bedridden, but you don't really feel well enough to be up it's and about, annoying. and that can mm-hmm. lead to some isolation for me. Um. Exercise. I'll go for a walk, and I have to go outside and go around the neighborhood, and I just have to be out in the world. Like that can be sometimes a first step for me to getting kind of back in the saddle. Um, I also I have a sponsor in my program of recovery, and I talk to her every day. I make it for me. It's a it's a practice, so that when I don't feel like doing it, I do it anyway. I just mm-hmm. I have to make it a point to reach out to somebody mm-hmm. every day. It's like taking your vitamins, right? You know. You yeah, know you it, it is. It is. Well, ladies, we're getting close to the end of our hour, and I want to make sure that um, we all get a chance to sort of give a wrap-up and give some final thoughts. And, Andrea, if there's anything we haven't gotten to yet that you want to share with us, um, we want to hear that as well. So we have probably ten minutes or so to sort of share our our closing thoughts or or, um, final challenges um, following this discussion. Um, and I'm, I'll, Andrea, I'll give you a minute to think while um, while Ellie and I can go first. Um, I'll tell you that the, what stands out from our discussion for me is just that I wrote it down that empathy makes us feel we belong. And I'm going to remember that from both sides of it, that when someone's reaching out to me mm-hmm. and when I need to reach out, um, that's that's going to be something that I'm going to really carry with me this week. How about you, Ellie? Oh, there's so much. I mean, this is a. I was really looking forward to this show because I know isolation is something that um, is definitely a tendency for me. And I, for a lot of it, I have to. I, I love the tools that Andrea shared because I, um, isolation is sneaky for me. It doesn't. I mean, it's. It has nothing to do with my social ability. It has to do with my state of mind, really. Um, you know, I can be in a room full of people, even a room full of people I love, and feel totally isolated because it's for me. Mm-hmm. It's all in the way that I, the way that I think. Um, and so, coming back to, I mean, the the I love Jean. You said something tonight too about how when we get out of ourselves, it can sort of yank us out of isolation. Um, I'm fortunate to work with a lot of people who are in recovery or in early recovery, and a lot of times helping somebody else or even having a conversation like this one, just being of service, doing something that isn't all about me 
um, mm-hmm. helps me a lot. So I loved our theme of empathy tonight. That was really, really helpful for me, not just in terms of when I receive it, but when I give it too. That definitely helps me get out of myself. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ellie. Andrea. Yeah, I just um, I'm just grateful to be given the opportunity to talk about anything regarding recovery and um, just it just fills my heart with joy. And I just want to really touch to you know touch on the people that are listening and just really acknowledge you for taking the time out of your day to put really amazing stuff between your ears. And that is a podcast about recovery because I know, especially if you're in early recovery, I know how noisy it is out in the, not just in the world, but like what's going on in your head. And, you know, the alcoholic in you is always trying to get you back. So the more you do and listen to things like this, the better off you are. And I just want to say one thing too quickly about kind of the whole like umbrella of what we've been talking about. And that is shame and what that comes down to is worthiness. And when we're in shame, we feel like we're not good enough and we feel like we're not worthy. And I just want to say, uh, you know, this was part of the seven-day challenge that, um, that that Jean was talking about. And if anyone's interested in that, I'm running it again in November. It's at yourkickasslife.com forward slash seven-day challenge, all one word. You can sign up now and you'll start getting the emails in November. And, um, and, and there are no prerequisites for worthiness. And I think a lot of times we make up that when I'm sober for a year, then I'll be worthy. When um, my parents aren't ashamed of me for being an alcoholic, then I'll be worthy. When I lose 25 pounds, I'll be worthy. When I get married again, I'll be worthy. Uh, you know, and on and on and on. And that's one of the exercises I give is, is write them down because they're floating around in your mind. Get them out on paper. And just remember that there are no prerequisites for worthy ever ever in a million years. And you are worthy just as you are, whether you relapse again, whether you're newly in recovery, whether you have 10 years under your belt, you are always worthy. Amen. (laughs) I love that. Oh, powerful stuff, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrea. It is just great to have you here. It's great to hear your voice. Um, I really enjoy your podcast a lot. I listen to it um, in the morning while I'm plucking my eyebrows, which for me is about oh. a 25-minute job every <laughs> single day because I'm Scottish. So <laughs> I feel better about myself for so many reasons when I'm done listening to your podcast. Because <laughs> your eyebrows are on fleck. Isn't that what they're saying, James? <laughs> oh, God. So uh, it's fun to have you here. And I just can't speak highly enough about how much I enjoyed doing the the challenge um, that you had on this week. And I get newsletters, fantastic. So tell our listeners here that you can learn more about Andrea by connecting with her for coaching. You can buy her book, download her podcast, sign up for her newsletter. Find all of this at yourkickasslife.com. You can also follow her on Facebook at Your Kickass Life on Facebook. And Andrea, I hope we don't wait another two years before we have you back. We need to have you back soon and, and talk I more about all of this. Back. Yeah, it's Thank great you to hear so you. Absolutely. And Ellie, I'm sorry you're not feeling well, but I'm so glad you were here. Your voice is like well, extra sexy you. with that husky. Well, I know. I kind of like that part of it, but yeah, kind of a sniffle. And that was that was could, excellent empathy you just expressed, Jean. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> My new tool. <laughs> oh, you guys, I'm I'm feeling good just 
just uh, from being on the phone with you guys and sending out lots of love to all of our listeners as well. Um, we're we're really glad that you're on this pathway with us. It's our honor to um, do this podcast for you on a regular basis, and we love hearing from you. So as I close tonight's show, I'm going to have you uh, ask you to go and check out our parent organization website, which is shiningstrong.org. You'll find links to all our resources there. That includes the Bubble Hour, Crying Out Now, and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. Visit our website at thebubblehour.com, and you'll find a link to many recovery resources. That includes my blog, Unpickled, and Ellie's blog, One Crafty Mother. Our email address is thebubblehour at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. So give us your feedback on the show. Um, Really helpful, the ideas that you send us for topics. Um, If you want to connect with Andrea, you can email us. We'll forward it to her, but better yet, go to her website and and touch base with her. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So we thank you for being with us and for listening, and we hope everyone has a great evening. Good night, you guys. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much. Have a good night, everyone. Bye-bye.